Okay. Let me just ask Kamala if there was any suggestions of what I should talk about. She wisely said the Dhamma. (laughs) So wise. And unhelpful. (laughs) I was going to just see if there was some things that I wanted to start off by just kind of getting the and then mood set and energy flowing, and then open to questions. Um, now I've been sitting in the room, or just resting a little bit, and nothing really strong was taking over my mind as far as uh, what to talk about. Um, It's amazing that the whole day so far, uh, you know, for each one of us has been um, just seeing, hearing, body sensations, some smelling, if you smelled the brownies, some tasting, (laughs) maybe desires and aversions, Thoughts, emotions. You know, so that was... Uh, in the Dharma, we call that the all. And I believe, was that Kamalin? Did the Buddha give that those teachings to his son, the all? Do you know? Yeah, yeah so anyways, that was one of the teachings that the Buddha gave. He would say, you know, what bhikkhus and, you know, talking to his monks and nuns, what is the all as far as experience? And, you know, our experience is defined by the all. Just the, there's these six sense experiences and anything that we were to point to as far as our experience is one of those. And yet out of those experiences we have our life and it can be so overwhelming. It's where our sense of self arises. We can have depression and elation and joy and confusion. And if we look carefully, it's just the six sense doors. And what's so powerful about the Dhamma at times is that it, because of these lists that are so often given, it helps to really simplify our experience down to something that's, uh, in a way, watchable. You know, in any moment we can watch the experience in the body when we have a certain thought. And when we don't look at it, it's all tangled up into a moment of self and experience. We have a thought and an emotion, a mood and body experience, and it all comes wrapped up very tightly. And we're not aware of that. And that can be a very overwhelming experience. And then when we look closely, sometimes we can actually just see that the causes and conditions that are just playing out lawfully. You know, when we have a thought that we identify with and we're not comfortable with the emotion that it triggers. We feel the agitation and the struggle and right, just a really kind of, we can tease out these different aspects. And so a whole day, you know, when we wake up and it has a whole vibrancy to it and it's seduction in terms of our story and we get into our routines of self And the power of the awareness is that we actually start to really be more close to what's happening. Close to the fact of what it's like to be a human being in our particular situation, our particular conditioning. You know, sometimes in my practice I would, in order to get a bit more perspective on what my experience is like, I would would imagine I'd do a bit of like... um, mind hopping, and I wasn't able to actually do this, so don't worry, but I would imagine, what is it like to be in that person's mind? As if I was suddenly in that person's mind, 
for the very first time, what would it feel like? What would it, what would it be like to be in that other mind? And it helped me to, like if I were to visit my own experience for the very first time, what, would it, what is it like to be me? And it helps to wake up the mind, to actually become more conscious to the things that we are so accustomed to, we don't even realizing we're experiencing them. And power of awareness helps us to really feel and experience very clearly what's, what's happening. You know, so I imagined oftentimes if I were, I don't know why my mind does this, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit silly mind, but you know, if I were an alien and never knew what consciousness was like or what a human being was like, and I'd come into this body and this form for the very first time, and just to experience what is it like to be a human being, and we discover, like new terrain, like when we first go to a new place, we get that sense of newness. We're so alive, and then we keep going there, and we slowly forget that we're even there anymore. You know, we go home and back to our room. It's so easy to lose our mindfulness because we're so accustomed to being there. Yes, we get so accustomed to being in our own experience, we forget what it's like. That's why kids, you know, can be such a powerful reminder of life, the life force, because they're stepping into, as far as they're aware, you know, into life for the first time. They're experiencing themselves so full, so rich. And the stories of our minds say, I've been here before, I'm so used to this. And it's just a story, because we've never been in this moment before. There was a white, a white pillar that I used to sit in front of in Burma when I was a monk. And it just looked like this white thing that was always the same thing. And on a certain day, when my eyes were open and I was practicing, it was radical. I was like really experiencing the newness of seeing each moment, that it was totally new. The pillar was, you know, in terms of concept, it was always the same pillar, you know, old. But the activity of seeing, of course, was in current moment happening. Seeing was happening. The sense of newness and freshness. And so easy to not um, just overlook the very simple things, which is now no real problem, but the tendency then is that our awareness really starts to get weaker and weaker because we take everything as being familiar and we lose, we lose sight of the mind that thinks, the mind that feels, the body that experiences. And the nature of awareness is to touch in again, to experience our life that's happening right now. Self-consciousness feels like this. <laughs> I just realized a bunch of you are looking at me. That's <laughs> what's supposed to happen. <laughs> so why don't we open up to questions? <laughs> why not? If there's any questions or comments, reflections, it's just a chance to talk about the Dharma. Yeah. Your question. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, gratitude is a big part of practice. Um, I think there's a, a this is a phrase that another teacher quotes a lot from. I think the Dhammapada that says that there's two rare and precious kinds of beings. Come on, could you help me out? Two rare and precious kinds of beings, 
those that are grateful and those who initiate and those who are generous. Yeah. Two rare and special kinds of beings, those who are grateful and those who are generous. Um, Yeah, gratitude. In fact, you know, in even just contemporary studies, uh, there's a lot of signs that show that gratitude is is one of the qualities of mind that, uh, when it's really present, is one of the greatest indicators for happiness. That's the power of gratitude. It is, it's not a, you know, it feels like, oh, just be grateful. But to actually have a mind that appreciates something, appreciates the moment, is a very wholesome, very wholesome quality. And there's a lot of practices that inclines the mind towards gratitude. You know, I think in terms of looking at the, you know, if we just think of the unwholesome qualities of mind, and as they diminish, what arises in when they're not there, they're really lovely mind states. And we think of, you know, when there is awareness and there is a sense of um, non-resisting to what's coming up, to what's being there, there's so much more availability for the mind to really appreciate a greater perspective and to be really grateful for what's arising. Um, I'm just thinking about you know loving kindness and gratitude, how they how they work together. Um, you know, to me, loving kindness would be this this just this this feeling that radiates outwards to all things and that is this sort of outflowing of you know love loving kindness sort of a very warm hearted feeling the sense of gratitude is you know just this and maybe just for your own exploration, to see, you know, I'm just sort of exploring right now in real time, what does it feel like to be, to be grateful for something? You know, we're not taking something for granted. We see, you know, the conditions that need to come together for something to happen. To be grateful, you know, for shelter. To be grateful that there's food to be grateful that there's air, clean air to breathe. You, know, you can see how the mind needs to be more awake to what's present and the conditions that are, that are there for gratitude to arise. You know, I'd see that we need to be somewhat mindful for gratitude to be present. Well, what, have you been, what were you grateful for? What was what was triggering the gratitude? You don't remember, yeah. I was like, I'm going to ask this question in the last minute. I don't remember. Yeah. How did you feel when you were grateful? Um, just like my heart was full. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's it. Yeah, it, that makes sense to me that the awareness component. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think I think seeing that things might could be otherwise. We see that this is the way this is, and inclining the mind towards um, these conditions have come together and allowing this particular thing, which we can have a sense of, of gratitude towards. And it's, you know, I was just thinking about the things I named, which are the basic needs, are so easy to not, to not feel. And so we can very easily be in that automatic pilot where we're taking things for granted. We take other people for granted. You know, I was listening to something recently that um, when people have lost 
loved ones and they realized how much they'd been taking for granted, even the very ordinary moments of just being together, or even, even arguments, the simple things. But once they're gone, we realized we could have had that sense of gratitude for what was there. You know, and that's why it's such a beautiful quality in the mind is because it's recognizing the impermanence of things. Things aren't always going to be there. The value of what is there. Um, you know, so I think when we do reflect on, on you know, the teachings of death and impermanence, it really makes it very clear you know, to the mind when we're really kind of in that state where we're recognizing we don't know how long we're going to live and we have no idea how long someone else is going to be alive. We have no idea how long this planet will be sustainable for in this kind of, in these conditions in this country, in this place. You know, and so that it can really wake the mind up to actually appreciating and being in a very wholesome state in regard to what's, you know, to what's arising. So some thoughts, yeah. Yeah, it's Thank you for your question. Yeah. Um, so, not 100% but this is, um, I don't know. Not sure it's a Dharma question? Or? Yeah, but tell me. Okay. Uh, Kamala said it has to be about the Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only instructions now so, if you ask for so it. Tell, tell me, tell me Okay. Uh, I'll be surprised if somehow the Dharma can't <laughs> include it. Mm-hmm. About, um, about uh, the experience of, of uh, impersonality or not self, uh, I apologize for my lack of knowledge about Buddhism. I think it's called Anatta. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Anatta. I, I have no training in, mm-hmm. in any sort of doctrine, so I don't know. But uh, uh, Kamala said there were five, uh, I think, aspects of mind. I forget the word. The five aggregates? Uh, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll list them and then you can okay. tell me what they are. Um, it was that in your mind you have the, the body, the body sensations mm-hmm. and perceptions and the, the feeling of uh, pleasant or unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, sorry, what was the, the, the knowing mind mm-hmm. and, uh, and the last is consciousness. Consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. So those. Um, yeah. But I was. Uh, I I recall that Kama said uh, that uh, the knowing mind is sort of the last to go. <laughs> mm. um, and I just I've been noticing in my practice uh, that the knowing mind for me is often uh, a guide or, or the. Uh, it comes with uh, the noticing of, of mental states um, and the sort of labeling that goes on. Um, I suppose that my question is, I, I can sort of notice in retrospect, oh, and there was knowing, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I struggle to notice it as it happens because it feels often like it's doing the noticing for me. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm, I think so. I'll see if... And so my question is sort of, do you have any uh, anything to say about how to be aware of that knowing, labeling mind? Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in absence of the knowing and the labeling, <laughs> or prior to, or some, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. Is that, is that a... I think so. I'll see if what I say, if that, if that connects to... Your experience, um, I mean, where my mind is initially going is, you know, when we get initial instructions on the, the foundations of mindfulness, of developing the mindfulness, usually what's pointed out to us is the things that we can notice, so the actual objects. And those foundations, actually the four foundations that we can pay attention to, are those aspects of experience that are kind of predominant and worth noticing, and they, they do end up including all of our experience. 
So the first foundation you know, would be the body. And that could be the breath or knowing the body sensations. And so there what we're doing is we're, we're developing an understanding and, and the awareness is knowing the objects. Um, and so we get usually pretty good at developing an awareness of the breath or awareness of the, the, the sensations in the body. When, the, when we're walking, you know, maybe the pressure of the feet on the ground or the moving of the legs. And then over time, as we include more sense doors, maybe we're starting to recognizing that we're hearing and that we're seeing. And, and so, we're, you know, more aspects of our, of our experience are starting to come in line. And we're still, you know, we're still knowing the objects. And we can say every moment of experience is the experience being known, right? So if we don't have the knowing, we don't really have the present moment of knowing that experience. So it's object and mind, object and mind coming together. So when we know the breath, that's the object. And then we're knowing. The attention is putting the, the attention is going to the breath and we're paying attention to the breath, right? So I'm being aware of the breath. As we develop that, and we start to begin to sense more and more the mind working, we can have this experience of knowing or recognizing the knowing side. So instead of darting to the sense doors, increasingly it's a bit like staying with a screen where everything shows up in the mind, right? Everything will come to the mind. So when we know the mind, we can rest more and more with the awareness that is knowing naturally. Seeing is happening, hearing is happening, the body's sensations are being known. And there's a, there's a sense of, yeah, I'm aware right now. There's awareness is present. And, and knowing what is being known and the knowing is happening. And it's just a matter of developing that familiarity. Right? Initially, we're really more, more inclined to the objects, knowing the objects. One thing that Utejaniya, and I like the way he brings this in a lot, is he'll ask, what's the meaning of an object? Typically, you know, an object. And what he's looking for when he asks that question is an object is its nature in terms of a moment of experience is something that's being known. So the breath or a sight or a sound is it's being known. The nature, so the meaning of an object is something being known. And there needs to be the mind or the knowing that knows it. So if you have breath with no knowing, there's no experience that doesn't arise into, into one's awareness. So as we, as we recognize more and more experience, we can see, oh yeah, I'm knowing the breath, or now I'm paying attention to hearing, and now I'm paying attention to the seeing, and we're getting more familiar that that's the activity of the mind. Right? And as we get familiar with that, slowly we start to just recognize the difference between being aware of something and when there isn't awareness. So that's now starting to know the knowing function. And that knowing is already happening every time we know the breath, we know some other experience, but we're just not, it's like the mind's not um, familiar enough yet or accustomed to really feeling that, that side of the moment of experience. It's still much more clear. The object is much more clear. The breath is clear. The the pain in the knee is clear. And then slowly we start to realize, oh, and the mind is knowing it. And then then when we choose to move the attention somewhere else, that can be a really clear moment of the mind activity. Attention is shifting. You know, so that used to be a place that I started exploring. Oh, that's activity of the mind, is moving the attention around. And then we get familiar with the knowing. Does that kind of get to what you were asking? I hope a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, experiences can be very complex and they can also be made very simple as far as, you know, every moment there is what's being known and there's the knowing. And as far as those five aggregates, that's, that was just another way that the Buddha uh, took apart the human experience or the human being. And he said one way of taking that apart is to say there's the body, 
And then there's these four mind components. And, and these four mind components are, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect to it. Perception is, is also, we perceive, you know, kind of understand experiences as perception. We recognize things, what they are. Right? And then there's the mental formations, which are all, all the mind activity. Uh, and then the last one is just the pure consciousness itself. Seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness. So that that's put in its own category. There's a lot to kind of five aggregates are very deep, and it's partly what you know the Buddha said. These five aggregates we take to be ourself, and we identify with them, and then the, this thing that we identify and cling to is where that sense of suffering come, arises out of. And we've, we've held on to this thing and, and take it to be, to be I. And then when we're not doing that, each time we're seeing nature as just nature, there's that subtle sense of, oh, right. It's a little bit less you know, stress in the mind. If, if any kind of further questions arise around the knowing, you can ask that. Um, you can see... Yeah. Hey. Let's see if I can phrase this. I often learn very much from people's personal experiences. Mm-hmm. So, were there events that caused you to know that you wanted to follow the path you're following? Mm-hmm. And that might translate into not us not becoming teachers, but helping us in decision processes. What happened? How did you know it? And then when you went forward, mm. how did you see it going forward? Specifically around why did I why did I really decided to dive into the Dharma? To be a teacher. Yes. Oh, to be a teacher. Yes. I'm not so sure my my movement into becoming a teacher has been a really graceful path. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's a little bit, there's the gratitude that I've had towards the Dharma and towards my teachers that because this is a very, you know, for my mind, my conditioning is an uncomfortable role for, for me to be in. If, if I were to just follow the pleasant and unpleasant aspect of experience, you know, I would bounce out of, out of the role. And, you know, I think there's there's an aspect to the Dhamma, the Dhamma that does generate an incredible amount of. You know, it's, it's this desire to support and, and help and and to give back that um, because we all you know we can see what is. It really does feel immeasurable that sense of. of being able to look into one's own heart and mind and understand more. Because this is, you know, the closest thing I feel that we each have in some ways is our own experience, our own mind. And depending on how, how we've cultivated the mind and what habits of mind we have, that's the kind of life we're going to live. And the more that I've had a chance to really look at my mind and understand it and, and slowly develop qualities that I, that I would want to develop and gain insights. The sense of, of seeing the value of that, I mean, they're just so clear and the possibility of the path is just so obviously worth walking. Um, it's an easy thing in a way to say, that's something I'd love to, to offer and because it's so wholesome. And when I've had a lot of doubts and I've told Utejaniya, I'm just I'm just the wrong personality to teach, and I have all these reasons why I'm just I'm terrible, I'm the worst, and all these thoughts. And you know, he'd say, you know, you should you should teach, you know, you should teach, and I'd say, oh no no no, and he'd say, no, the, he'd say, dhamma. This is considered dhamma dana, you know, since we teach out of just the kindness and giving. He said that's it's the highest kind of giving that you can give, because it's good in the giving. And it's good in the receiving. And it's really a very pure thing because dhamma that we, that we give one another, 
it's, it's a pure, it's, it's so wholesome. And then in the receiving, the hearing, the listening to the Dhamma, every time we're listening to one another and receiving Dhamma, we can feel the mind brighten. Um, and then it's helped to hear that just about every other teacher has pretty much you know, had their heels in front of them being pushed into teaching and they've just resisted every moment. And it's like, okay, so I've, I've got good, uh, good examples ahead of me. Um, but, you know, the decision-making... You know, we make this. We. Much as you the highest form of yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think our. You know, one thing that one of the things that I have reflected on frequently, and particularly when I'm making decisions, is that I have available to me at any given moment that amount of wisdom that I've developed at that at that time and it'll probably be different later on, but I can only make a decision on what's available to me at that moment, and hopefully I'm inclining my mind more towards the things that I would like to make a decision based from, knowing that's imperfect at this time, but that's what I can make a decision from. And I don't need to worry that it's not necessarily going to look perfect in hindsight, you know, five years from now. It's just that's what was available. And that's true in the past. That's what was available in the past. And that's, you know, long past. Most of my decisions were, I mean, my God, what were they based on? Um, you know, a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, scrambled thinking, like, but trying. I would really try because I didn't know, I didn't know how to take, even know even that I had a mind that was thinking. I didn't know I had a mind. So what was I using to make my decisions? You know, I had no idea. But, you know, it's certainly not. Um, now where I know there's a mind and I know that there's different qualities, I know I can let my mind feel really settled before I make big decisions. I'm not making them when the mind is most agitated, most fearful, but letting the mind settle then make a decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you talk about the uh, spiritual faculties and the, the balance of them mm. practice? The five spiritual faculties and the balancing of them. Yeah. So, a little, I think right now, I, I spoke with Kamala earlier today. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that when one is really strong, the others need to catch up. And mm. looking at my practice, I've seen that uh, my concentration has been really strong. Mm. It's magnified all of this suffering. Mm. Uh, and I, I can notice when others kind of rise up, but it, it's been a really interesting dance watching mm. them interact with each other. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so just in case you didn't hear the question about the five spiritual faculties and finding um, the importance of needing to balance them if one's really strong, having the others kind of catch up to it and that you're noticing that concentration can maybe get ahead. Um, Yeah, actually that was one of the things that Seidoff would oftentimes, to me, he he was, in his teaching, he but sometimes that's when his kind of caution would come up, is when the yogis would get too concentrated. Um, and too concentrated was, again, in the sense of the balance of the mind. And, and what he was oftentimes pointing out, and this isn't, I don't think, too much in the canon, because usually it's the concentration in there, we're talking a bit more like the stability, which can lead into a sense of just everything being calm and, and then sinking, which then we would need to balance with energy. But sometimes the kind of concentration that we're talking about is pretty focused in energy. And he would oftentimes talk about the need for wisdom to really be there, that when the mind is not yet um, bringing in right view and right understanding, that the mind that's very focused and very concentrated can take things and get unbalanced with them. So we, we look at something and we take it personally. Or 
uh, we're agitated by what we're seeing. And so the importance of bringing in some, you know, some other factor of mind, reminding ourselves, okay, this is impermanent. This is arising right now. This is what I'm seeing. Uh, yeah, and this is also arising because the conditions are there. And maybe even using the awareness itself, so strengthening the mindfulness to recognize, oh, this is really strong concentration. You know, so that's a really important thing sometimes in our practices. We can check and what factors are strong, what's, what factors are weak. Am I, am I trying so hard that I'm not trusting enough? It's a sense of confidence, faith. Can I just trust experience to unfold? I'm still trying. So it's not, not that sense of settling. You know, is the looking for experience creating a lot of tension in the mind so the energy is too high, that efforting, it's not balanced energy. And really that, that also needs to, that involves more wisdom. And these are all factors. They're not like on and off. They're like a maturing to me. It's like, you know, maybe wisdom is in, in fifth grade and energy is in, you know, PhD level. And we go, okay, I've got to chill that out just a little bit and let some wisdom catch up. And, you know, it's like they're at different levels and, and they all continue to develop um, as we practice. But classically, we would, you know, we, we say that, that confidence or faith and trusting can balance that investigative wisdom mind and that they, they balance each other. And then energy and concentration or stability can balance each other. And then mindfulness is, is the balancing factor itself. That we, it's said that you can't have too much mindfulness. And that, that right mindfulness, samasati, right mindfulness, we think about it, it's not a really deep penetrating thing, which tends to be more about what we're doing with a lot of energy and concentration. Mindfulness that just really knows what's happening can't be too much in that way. Um, and then sometimes I thought, can we have too much wisdom? How do we have too much wisdom? And I think it's not so much pointing to the wisdom aspect as much as it's pointing to the, to the faculty that investigates, you know, that's digging and looking, that, the investigative mind. So there we'd say, you know, that could be put into balance. That it's just, we don't need that much right now. There's already a sense of interest, which is enough. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, I'm going to call this kind of a delusion check. Okay. Um, uh, when 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 awareness is weak, mm-hmm. um, what seems to happen is um, I wake up and. Um, it's sort of jarring, and it's like I, I go back to uh, an object mm-hmm. right away to establish awareness again. Or that's one way this happens. And as awareness has um, gotten a little more continuous, um, when I woke up from a mm-hmm. uh, thought train, um, I noticed that often there was a... Um, uh, there was there was a um, hindrance that I could sort of identify, you know, mm-hmm. like it was wanting mind or it was aversion. Mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. a, a charge to mm-hmm. it, and and as awareness was deepening, I could kind of often quickly see the thought it, that I missed that started the proliferation into that place. Mm-hmm. Not always, but sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And today I was walking, doing walking on the path back and forth, and um, I noticed that um, awareness felt deeper, that feeling that Mm -hmm. I was talking about in an interview Mm -hmm. this morning, where it was deeper, wider, whatever, it felt cool, and and I was, the the thoughts were, I could see them coming and going, kind of, and the thought came to my mind, um, it's important to be noticing these so that they won't lead to the proliferation. Mm -hmm. And that felt like 
it wasn't like I was saying, oh my God, be careful. Right. They're going to proliferate if you don't right. catch them. But it was sort of this, it, it felt like it helped, um, it helped me want to keep noticing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I'm thinking that was a good thought. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You think that was a good thought? That the the the, the importance of yeah. why, why it was important to notice. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you could say you were you were seeing the tendency that when you when you're not when you have kind of a miss moment of of being aware of some thought that that immediately can pull you into the story and the awareness gets weak and you're just seeing that okay that's what happens that seems to be what happens and because you value having awareness, you're wanting to maintain that. Um, the image in my mind, for some reason, uh, do, you, do you, are there ticks here? Do we get ticks? In, no, okay, so this was like a really hot topic in IMS where there was ticks and always people were talking about ticks. And so Seidel, like, Seidel's analogy started using ticks. And I was like, Seidel, that's not the best analogy because people don't like ticks. And so he said, but, you know, he said, so the way you know, a tick will like, grab onto you and hold on, he's like, that's the way you should feel with awareness. You know? When the awareness, like, you should value it that much. And I was like, mm, I don't know if that analogy really works. Because <laughs> it seems like a lot of doing and also holding. And you know, it sort of goes against his, you know, the phrasing of just like, is awareness present? It doesn't quite seem like a tick holding on. Um, but when you value awareness, we don't want to lose it, right? We actually really value the sense of knowing our, our experience. Um, and there's something more and more skillful that seems to get developed when we really see how the conditions that weaken awareness. You know, so for most of us, it would also be having a conversation. You know, maybe the first two syllables are mindful. And by the end of the first word, you know, we've lost it. And, but it's like, then again, we keep, we know, we can sort of feel the awareness not being there and the agitation it starts to build. But then we start to be aware of the agitation. And one of the benefits of not judging what we're aware of means that anything we start becoming aware of again is already good. It's already awareness coming back. Right? But we so often want the experience that we're being aware of to be good that then we make being aware in a conversation or a difficult situation, we make that be, you know, that, that's a hard place to practice because we have an idea that it, what we're experiencing should be pleasant. But when we remember that actually that awareness just simply recognizes what happens, even if it's unpleasant. Ah, great, now I'm aware again. And I'm agitated. And I'm feeling this. And I'm feeling, I'm knowing my thoughts. And so then it's like, then it becomes easier in those places that, are a bit, that we assume are hard to be mindful. We start bringing the awareness in, you know, so that also becomes kind of more continuous. So it's also, the, you know, that's also wisdom developing when, when we see how we lose it. I know, we don't like to say ourselves are wise, I know. But actually, you know, I like this from Sayadaw, that he would often point out people's wisdom. You know, they're using their wisdom, they're seeing it as nature, they're understanding that it's something worth watching, and that we have to really recognize that that understanding is growing. And then he uses, he's very funny, the analogies he used, and he was using investing as an analogy of, you know, when you invest your money and you can grow it, and you tend to your money skillfully, He's a monk, you know, he's talking about investing and growing your money and, you know, having your bank account grow. And how do you have your bank account grow? It's because you're, you know how to grow your money and, you know, you have to look after it. And he said, it's like wisdom. You have to know what it is and invest it and keep using it and it grows. And then if you don't use it, it starts to, you know, get, it'll get weaker and weaker. Or any, any wholesome quality is like that if we don't use it. Okay. Let's just see it. All right. Before you become that guy, is there anyone else? Yeah. Let's just hold on. Hold on one second. Let's just see. I was just going to make a joke. Bathroom? (laughs) 
I know, it's Yogi job. <laughs> Hi, Liz. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome Although back. I'm afraid of being that person too, because um, I, I haven't actually ever asked questions on retreat before, and this is like mm. the first time that I've done that, and I'm like, this is the third time, it's too much, but I'm going to see that mm. and kind of put it over here. Okay. I've never answered so many questions on retreat, so oh. we're in the same boat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm noticing this area where I don't want to grow up either. Mm-hmm. Which is that um, I know, I'm noticing this tension, like during this Q and A, where it's like mm-hmm. the mind wants to come up with a question, right? And even like throughout the day, it's like I want to find a way to ask something that's going to illuminate something that I can't already see or that I don't mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. the ability to contact myself, right? And the more I ask questions, I'm noticing that. No, don't take this the wrong way, but y'all don't have the answers. Right. Like the teachers don't have the answers anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like an agitation to that. Mm. It's like, oh, like, there can't be some kind of um, relief that comes from someone else helping to answer right. something. Yeah. And so it feels like I'm, I'm like 16 and I, I want to leave the house I want to go out on my own and discover all this mm. stuff, but I'm like, I sort of still want my parents to take care of me a little bit, mm. mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm just in this growing up in the Dharma place where um, yeah, it's kind of scary to, to realize mm-hmm. that I can't get the answers from outside of me. Right, yeah. And I'm wondering if Maybe the last question I ever asked. <laughs> <laughs> like, I Probably not. No. But I know what you're saying. Like, yeah. do people, is this like a thing that happens? Uh, like, I'm kind of looking to yeah. you to like normal. Yeah, this is stage thing. 212. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone not hear the question? Everyone heard it. Oh, you didn't quite hear it. Um, just noticing that, um, you know, Kamala and I don't have the answers, in a way. Um, And more just recognizing that, you know, the understanding is really her responsibility. And it what, just in a way, kind of commenting on that. You know, I think a lot of practice comes to that eventually. And and this is one of the things that I really appreciated with Utejaniya, is that he was, his whole interest for his yogis around him was to give them enough information to really awaken their own sense of the path and understanding of their own mind, of how to practice, that ultimately they wouldn't need, they wouldn't need him. They could just continue to, to look. And anyways, you know, the information that we get in the beginning, we need all those pointers. And over time, as we practice, we realize the information that we get it's at a certain level. The insights that transform the mind are something that we cannot pass, which is why, you know, the Buddha, I mean, he had special capacities to teach in the right way, but it was still the mind was ready to, to awaken. And, but even then, he said, it's we each need to walk the path. And for ourselves, we need to know something. So, you know, I can ask you something, you could tell me something, and yet my mind needs to understand. So even though I might tell you something, it's still your mind that's going to have to do the work, right? So even when we ask questions, and I still at times have questions I ask, it's still going to be my mind that needs to really understand on, the, on a level that brings that, that release of that particular karmic knot that has that, that thing in place. Um, You know, and so, yeah, the, a lot of dharma, particularly if we're newer on the path, in a way we're, we're, we're collecting a lot of stuff so that we can get to the place where we have the information that we can then 
we know how to, how to move along the path. We know where the path is, and it's just a matter of doing it. And it can be helpful still to, to chat with spiritual friends. Um, and insights are our responsibility. You know, and, and that's just what we come to. We realize no one can do this for us. Um, that can feel like a heavy you know, load and lonely at times. And it also can really feel like, in a way, liberating. Oh, it is up to me. I can do this. And each time I do a bit, I feel the result. And each time I, I kind of slack off right, and, and let the residue build, that's also the result of what I've been doing. You know? And so we just really take responsibility for our path and, and the unfolding Yeah. How do you tend to the not wanting to grow up part? The not wanting to grow up. We just yeah. listen to it. You know, I think, um, what is it for you when you when you don't want to grow up? Or don't want to grow? Along the path, one thing that has given me kind of, and I've reflected on this a lot, not only for myself, but my spiritual friends around me and also those that are not on the path and my, my family, is that at any given moment, in a way, the next step that's available is just the next step that's available. And we don't even need to kind of get too far beyond that, thinking what's what, you know, all the other things. And I can when I realized just how strongly conditioned conditions are and, and the difficulty of even making a subtle change and the amount of time of watching that takes for even the, the, the slightest kind of release around something, it really, it, I don't know, it's just made me much more understanding and patient when, I'm, when I am with beings that, that I find are difficult for me and realizing I'm wanting them to change. And I can, I'm spending so much time with these skill sets to watch my own mind unfold and change. And it really gives me a sense of patience in the path. And knowing that you know, if we're, if we're, whatever, wherever we are, what is currently the next thing that's available is just that particular step on the journey. It's the next step and the next step. You know, and when I think about then what's going to happen when I change a lot, I just realize that's more of a thought and there's just this next step that I don't need to worry about. You know, I just I have so much confidence that as we do develop, our hearts do become more sensitive and we have more capacity and we have more wisdom and we have more, you know, all the wholesome factors come with us and we have less need to cling to the identity that was just before you know, because in certain times we have a certain need to cling to a certain way that we have, that we are. And that feels like, I don't want to let go of that. That's who I am. And, you know, just, and that's great. So that's, that's what I'm holding on to in this moment. And then at the next moment, it's something slightly different. We realize that this whole thing is in flow, in flux, and that kind of, that, you know. I'll stop there. Yeah. Yeah. Troublemaker? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm already that guy. Okay. Well, in that case, I will ask. And I think uh, a little bit of what you just said might speak to this. Mm -hmm.
I suppose the importance of recognizing or stepping away from uh, feelings that you take sort of personally. Mm-hmm. I spoke to you a little bit about mm-hmm. uh, regrets and doubts and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You were saying, well, you know, when you can step away from those, you can see that when you're here, you know, it's not necessarily anything to be done uh, in certain circumstances and just to bring that sense of forgiveness to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just sort of wondering, I think, I suspect you might say something to the effect of uh, this is the place for sort of wisdom and uh, uh, a sort of something you have to work out for yourself. Uh, but if you have any advice on the, um, where to draw the line between uh, in some sense resolve, uh, absolving yourself of sort of personal responsibility mm-hmm. for certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, from the, you know, everything is causes and conditions mm-hmm. and it isn't necessarily something that I can mm-hmm. have done anything about or do anything mm-hmm. about now. Um, the line between that and the, the relative self of, well, of course, it is my fault according to everyone else. Or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. there is some sense in which I have responsibility and there are some actions that I should take in terms of Everyone hear that question? I do hope. Yes. Okay. Um, let's see where to start. Um, I don't know if it's in this chant, but there, there is one of the chants that is that we're one of the phrases is that we are heirs to our karma, which you know when we look at it. We might question, well, why, why, how can there be an heir to karma if there's not a self? And yet, you know, in the understanding of causes and conditions and cause and effects, there is, in fact, uh, results that continue to unfold based on the causes that were there. But what's not there is this solid sense of self that doesn't need to be there for effects to continue to happen to beings, to beings that are just the way they are. So just in, this, in the, the suggestion around uh, not taking the sense of guilt as an I am guilty or I, you know, I, it's really an encouragement to begin to just see more clearly our experience. So to actually understand the nature of guilt, when we see how this is being sort of experienced in the present moment, guilt and shame and judgment. And we see how in the current moments, this is you know, a different side, we're seeing in the current moment how causes and conditions lead to a present result. The need to then judge and blame in the past, that falls away a bit because we realize actually those conditions were there for something, for a mistake to a mistake, you know, to arise that would cause harm to oneself or to someone else, and it's the idea is that it's actually the wisdom and, and understanding can be there that sees how something happens, and we take full responsibility that conventionally we did do that, but there's an understanding of how that happened. That happened because there was delusion, because there was fear, because there was clinging to self. Right, so we're actually seeing it more clearly, and then current moment, what allows us to actually really have forgiveness in the heart, is we, you know, we really realize why someone acts a certain way, why I acted a certain way. And oftentimes we're very easy to forgive outwardly, but have a very difficult time forgive inwardly. But the same processes are are at play. You know, so when Kamala was mentioning the killings that had happened recently in the church. And there was an immediate outpouring of forgiveness from some of the family members and the church members. 
and they were forgiving this being. They, they, you know, the act was violent and horrific, but they, you know, had an understanding that there was this being that also was confused and, you know, acting out something horrific. And they wanted to forgive. They, they had that capacity. And we're not actually seeing more deeply into life. All we see is action and, you know, we're looking through the self-lens. And so all that can come is judgment and blame and, and hatred. And we actually see what motivates, what's motivating behind, in a way we're seeing more into the Dhamma. All right, that person was overwhelmed with confusion and probably had a very difficult life. And we just see that. That, that brings clarity. So, let's see if I got to the questions of what can we... Uh, we are responsible for our actions in the sense of uh, that is our karma that's being created. And there doesn't need to be a self-identity that that happens to. It happens to be just moment-to-moment conditions that continue to have effects. And so we will bear the results of those effects. You know, and and this, those effects also are playing out around us. You know, so one phrase is that, you know, the mind doesn't belong to us, but we're responsible for it. There's always, for me, a very helpful thing to reflect on is, you know, this, there is this mind, and we will bear the results. But that labeling it, I... And then, which then covers over the fact that it's impermanent and arising due to conditions and causes. When we cover that with a sense of self, we no longer see things for what they are. Does that does that kind of clarify it a bit? A little bit. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I kind of, I want to ask, you know, uh, so then recognizing that that all of that, like you mm-hmm. say, is how it is, um, and that we do have. We can see the causes and conditions more clearly mm-hmm. um, in removing a sort of the internal self sense, uh, but then on the level of sort of relative interpersonal selfness, uh, there there are sort of appropriate actions in certain circumstances uh, towards other people who you know who have been. Yeah, and, and might be, uh, you know, I might be able to do something about that, or and should I, and, you know, and how do I um, kind of navigate that space of of knowing when to act uh, mm-hmm. further mm-hmm. Uh, and knowing when not to act. Uh, I'd say keep practicing. Yeah, that's continue practicing. practicing. <laughs> <laughs> I should just that should be the answer. Continue practicing. Um, <laughs> And just to say about the self, that we're not, we're not needing to remove the self. It's just to recognize, we want to just recognize the way things are. And that the way things are, our mind tends to paint, paint an eye on it. But anger is just anger. Frustration is just frustration. Guilt is just guilt. And then we say, my guilt, my aversion. So it's not to remove anything. And the more present we are, to the way things are, we see the results more clearly. We see when we cause pain. We know our own pain. We're sensitive to that because we're more mindful. We see the, res- the actions that we take. And when that causes pain, we're more sensitive to that. So in a way, seeing causes and conditions ought to make us that much more sensitive to our actions and the results that they have. Not less sensitive because there's no self, which is just delusion talking. It's just saying, oh, there's no self. And it's actually not any understanding in that. It's just an idea that says no self. And, um, you know, but actually seeing causes and conditions is what they are. And the, the, the experience of dukkha, the experience of suffering, that's insights. Oh, I really understand that. It makes us sensitive to the world around us. So anytime, you know, the mind is saying, oh, it doesn't matter, it's all, you know, no self, they would just feel, oh, okay, let me see, let me just slow down for a second and like, you know, just be with experience again.
Yeah, yeah, you know, just deciding to act or not to act is, would be an act of just really taking your time and being mindful. Letting, letting as much as you can take in to be known. What state of mind am I in? Am I agitated? Am I judging? Am I feeling clear? Am I compassionate? So you can see all, the more you can see that what's operating in your mind, the more skill you'll be able to operate out of. But when we're not able to yet you know, see into our own mind and body, then we're just going to act out whatever patterns happen to be there, whatever things we're accustomed to doing. Right? So that's just, that's the nature of mindfulness is we can see what's motivating me. Is it, is it wholesome? Is it unwholesome? Do I want to act this out or not? And that, of course, is hard to do when the mind is very, you know, reactive. But we get, you know, the more we practice, the, the more skilled we get in different conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, now that hour did go fast <laughs> for me. <laughs> so, thank you for your kind attention and your questions. And we have uh, 10 minutes or so until those that are having the evening meal. Uh, so can we gather here at 7.30 for Metta? Great. And now you say sadhu. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.